0: Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 173, covering the week of June 10th through June 14th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If You don't want to find all those social media buttons. Just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. You'll find all those buttons at the top of the page. You'll also find our Amazon Smile button. So if you want to help the Institute by shopping at amazon.com, you just click on that button. We become your preferred nonprofit organization, and you throw a few pennies our way as you're shopping at amazon.com. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. You'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday. You can also support the Abbeville Institute by clicking on the button at the top of the page that says shop. uh, And you click on that and it'll take you right out to get your Abbeville Institute apparel. It's all embroidered, nice stuff. So it's not going to fade in the washing machine or in the dryer. It's great stuff. Summer's coming up. We've got golf shirts, T-shirts, hats, all kinds of great stuff for that. Also remember that we exist on your generous contributions alone. So if you want to donate to the Institute, it is tax deductible to the full extent of the law. You click on that button on the top of the page that says support. Click on that, and it'll uh, show you a donor options. And we have monthly, annually, or a one-time donation option. So lots of ways to give to the Institute. Uh, also remember that our summer school is coming up July 21 through July 26, 2019. There's only a couple of, week left, a couple of weeks left, I should say, to uh, get in on that. So if you want to go to the summer school or if you want to get a scholarship, if you're a high school, under college, undergraduate, or graduate student, Uh, Make sure you contact Dr. Livingston because time is fast running out. So if you want to go, this is going to be a great topic, the New South and Reconstruction. So um, a lot of great speakers, a lot of great information. It's going to be well worth your time to go there. And it's at the beach, so you get a week at the beach. A lot of fun. Um, So those are all great things to do with the Institute. And, of course, all the support that you give us, you know, share our information on social media, rate this podcast on Apple iTunes or uh, Apple Podcasts, I guess it's called now. Um, Make sure that you are uh, commenting on our material, which I am going to address in this particular podcast, because we had a pretty controversial article this week on social media. Uh, But please do those things. Share it around. Help us explore what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. We do appreciate your support and your contributions. All right, so let's talk about the material for the week. Monday and Friday's piece actually bookend each other, and they work well together. Um, And then we had a couple of interesting pieces Uh, in the middle of the week. And so let me start with the one actually on Wednesday, and I'll get to the other two in a minute. The Wednesday piece by Walt Garlington. um, The title of that particular piece is The GMO Threat. Now, Mr. Garlington is a well-educated man. He lives in Louisiana. He is a biblical scholar, um, a real student of Southern history. He's a classical scholar. And he wrote this little piece about genetically modified organisms. And in in his opinion, GMOs are um, the antithesis of the Southern tradition. His position is based on a biblical understanding of um, what happens with GMOs, where you're creating these new organisms, and he thinks that's biblically unsound, but also because he believes that these particular crops can lead to health problems down the road. uh, That people that consume a tremendous number of GMO crops will have some issues with their health. Now, uh, this particular position is controversial. Uh, we just saw this week that the Trump administration has re- removed essentially any restrictions or oversight on GMO crops. Um, and so this is now a, a major issue. Now the are GMOs, of course, um, unhealthy? I mean this is uh, this is debatable. There's a lot of information on the web on the internet about this. Um, some people say they are, some people say they aren't. We do know that GMOs are primarily created. Uh, to avoid uh, having problems with pesticides and herbicides. So, uh, and there, there is, uh, there is evidence that uh, if you consume GMO soy, it's not the, it's not the soy that's going to hurt you. It's all the Roundup that's been dumped on it, uh, because it is going to be heavily. Uh, they, they create this GMO soy for, for Roundup use. So you can just keep dumping weed killer on it, and it doesn't really hurt the, the plant. So Garlington's position is that look, I mean, these things are. They're they're the antithesis of of the southern agrarian tradition, and uh, we shouldn't have them. I mean, we should we should try to consume products, and we should get we should avoid industrial farms and these type of things that are creating this this type of environment. So this is a really interesting topic, and a lot of people were upset about this. In fact, some people said that they, they couldn't believe that the institute would publish something like this. Well, why not? Um, there is one point to make about this, and so. I think that people conflate sometimes a GMO, the people that are against GMOs, or at least they look at these people and they say, well, these are people that are these uh, left wing greens, right? They're the left wing environmentalists uh, that are out there trying to run around and tell us, you know, that we can't have plastic straws and things like that. Uh, That's not what Garlington is saying. And there is a difference between Southern agrarianism and Southern environmentalism and say this uh, environmentalism that's been created by reading Thoreau's Walden. Or uh, the the 1960s hippie movement, which created some agrarians. Um, Wendell Berry is different from the leftist agrarians. The, the Southerners, the Twelve Southerners, will take my standard, are different than the than the leftist agrarians, and I think Garlington is coming from that position. Um, th- and, and his agrarianism is based on a biblical understanding of being good stewards of the environment. His concern, of course, with GMOs is that they're not, they're not good for the environment. They're not good for people. They're not good for the environment. They're just not good overall. And so, therefore, perhaps we should reconsider GMOs. Now, he does use some language where people took offense. He said, well, you know, it's poison. And he called them poison, um, essentially. And people got very upset with this. Um, so... I would say that when you look at this particular article, he's not advocating any type of federal oversight of these things or to have the federal government. He's saying, look, people should just choose not to use them. People should choose not to consume GMOs. Uh, We should really look at trying to curtail the industrial farm, have small farmers, have people go out and not use these type of products uh, because they can be dangerous to health and the well-being of the southern people. So his position is very much pro-southern. Uh, but people took this the the wrong way, and I think that that's unfortunate. You know, when you have a diverse group of opinions, which we publish a lot of at the institute, not everyone agrees on everything at the institute uh, all the time. I mean, th- this is we, we're we're a group of scholars, over two hundred uh, scholars, and other people that uh, that publish that write for us and and ask to be published, and so um, we have a diverse group of opinions. But the most important thing is that uh, the position that Garlington is in. He is a Southerner first and foremost. He is a proud Southerner. He uh, just doesn't agree with industrial farming. He doesn't agree with with genetically modified organisms. And he gives some very good, I think, valid reasons why he doesn't, which is why we chose to publish the article. So uh, it it led to conversation. It led to debate. Uh, It also led to people saying they would never support the Institute again. I don't know why. Uh, Because we published something you don't agree with? That's just in many ways, silly. Uh, so that's fine. Debate it. Say, well, we don't we don't agree with this. We think this is incorrect, and that's that's great. I mean, I I understand that, and and not everyone's going to agree with everything we write. I mean, heck, I've written pieces that people got very upset about um, because they didn't think that uh, that was uh, they weren't correct. I mean, I wrote one uh, several years ago on on the, uh, on religion, Southern, something on Southern religion. And some people were very upset about this article. And so um, it's okay. It, it stimulates debate. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to get people to think about these things. And there were a lot of people that, of course, loved this article and said, yeah, we're all for the family farm, and maybe GMOs are problematic because of industrial farming. Um, but to take as and the studies that have been done to say they're safe, as one poster pointed out on, on uh, Facebook, that's to, I mean these, these studies are often being uh, produced by the companies that make the GMOs. Of course they're going to say they're safe. I mean, Monsanto is one of the largest GMO-producing corporations in the world. Of course Monsanto is going to say they're safe. Uh, but are they really? I mean, this is, this is a question that hasn't necessarily been answered yet. Uh, we know. I mean, you take all kinds of, you know, skin, uh, skin care, You're putting a uh, sunblock on you. It goes into your bloodstream. People, the the environmentalists, quote unquote, have been saying this for years, and finally, people are. The government's starting to admit it. Oh yeah, well, it, maybe it does. But nobody's ever studied if this chemical that you put on your body to block the sun is safe. So, we have uh, we have a situation in America where we have to have debate about these things, and. Um, Garlington is coming from a well-educated position. He's not just trying to spread uh, <clears throat> spread rumors and uh, conspiracy theories. That's not it. Uh, he's just asking questions, and I think that's that's important. I mean, these things have only been around for about you know twenty years or so, twenty five years. So it's important to ask these questions now. Other articles for the week. Uh, the Review, and I'm going to get into the Monday and Friday piece together. So The Review this week by Shane Anderson is on the First South. It's uh, it's by 19. It's on a 1961 book of that title read, uh, written by John Alden. And uh, what's really interesting about this book is that Alden is pointing out that the North and the South had many differences beyond slavery and that these differences... Uh, existed all the way back into the colonial period. This is something you can find if you just go out and do just a smidgen of research. You're going to find that. And a lot of it didn't have to do with slavery. Um, It wasn't just slavery that these two sections didn't see eye to eye. There's all kinds of issues that they didn't see eye to eye about. So this war that happens in 1860 had been brewing for over 80 years. It's just that nobody had fired at each other yet. And nobody had left the Union. We, I mean, look, the North was wanting to leave the Union several times because they didn't think that they could be in a union with the South. And nobody looks back and says, well, the North was trying to secede because they didn't want to be in a union with slave owners. Well, the abolitionists in the 1840s, potentially, uh, that was true. There were potential of secession. But when you look at the secession crisis of uh the uh, the Jefferson administration 1801 or 1803 or 1815 and what people were talking northerners were talking about then or even 1796 they're not talking about slavery. They want to leave because they know that the South has a political as a, has a monopoly on political power and that they're dominating the government. and so the North wanted out of the Union. The Essex Junto, led by some pretty prominent northerners. I mean this is this is lost in history. Why? Because it doesn't fit the agenda. If secession was all about slavery all the time, then you would think that these Northerners would have been seceding because they were in a union with slave owners, and that's simply just not true. They wanted out because they didn't want to be in union with Southerners anymore who had different views on political economy and society, uh, and it just wasn't working for them. This is exactly what the South was saying in 1860 and 61. It just wasn't working for them. So I think it's very important to understand the long view of secession and decentralization and the North-South conflict in American history. The long view, not just 1860 or 1859 or even 1850 to 1860. And even then, when people say, well, the war was all about slavery. Well, why slavery? Why was it all... what is this slavery issue? Was the war really about slavery, or I mean, could you say secession was about slavery? But why slavery was secession? I mean, Southerners recognized, and they actually admitted that they didn't, most of them knew they, they might have rhetorically to, to rile up the masses would say the North is coming for our coming for the slaves in the South, and this did happen. I mean, there's no doubt about it. But they understood that the general government couldn't couldn't. A of slavery in the South. And Lincoln even knew that. He said, look, I'm not going to touch slavery in the South. The issue is the Western territories. So what this came down to is about 50 slaves in the Southwest. But it was more about principle. If the North can just, in the Southern view, violate the Constitution over and over again, and this had happened over and over again in their mind. Then what's to stop them from violating the Constitution for any reason? I mean, when you when people like James Lowen and others run around and say, well, the South was actually seceding against nullification because the North nullified the fugitive slave law. Well, there's a difference between Northern nullification on that particular issue and Southern nullification on a tariff or Southern nullification on the uh, Sedition Act. What was the difference? The fugitive slave law is in the Constitution, The tariff is questionable as to what kind of tariff we can have, and certainly the Sedition Act, when Jefferson and Madison wrote the Virginia-Kentucky Resolutions, um, the Sedition Act is clearly a violation of, of Amendment 1 of the U.S. Constitution, if not Amendment 10. So when you nullify the Fugitive Slave Law, though, you're nullifying what's in the Constitution. Now, we can quibble with, well, I mean, uh, what parts of that did they nullify? Was there something that was actually abusive in that law? But regardless, uh, it's not like the the uh, the issue of free of free speech or free press or uh, a type of tariff. Um, this is something entirely different, and so I think it's important to notice and note the differences between the two. And and John Devaney points that out in the piece that we wrote on Monday. So. Um, yeah, I mean I like this I like this piece. It's 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 good. And uh I think that uh Anderson did a nice job in reviewing the book and pointing out that, you know, there are there are long-standing differences, differences between the north and the south and it's not just slavery. I mean, certainly that was a difference, but there were other differences as well. So it was a great piece. And then on Thursday we ran a piece, 10 things you didn't know about Robert E. Lee. Now, this is written by Uh, Stephen Klugevitz, who is um, a, uh, let's see, what is his title now? He's the editor of the Imagining Conservative. I forgot what he was doing, his title, his official title. But this is interesting. He comes up with 10 things that you may not have known about Robert E. Lee. So, ranging from he did not grow his famous beard until late in life, uh, he was largely responsible for opening the Mississippi River to navigation, he was extremely frugal with money, he corresponded with Whistler's mother, and Whistler, of course, being the very famous uh, James McNeil Whistler, who was a um, uh, a painter. Uh, he loved to flirt. He slept in a modest soldier's tent and ate from the same rations as his men. He rode other horses besides Traveler during the Civil War. He disliked slavery and abhorred secession. And finally, uh, I'm sorry, he met with Ulysses S. Grant a second time at Appomattox after the famous surrender, and he turned down many lucrative business offers after the war ended. Now, some of these things are, are pretty well known, but If you're maybe you don't know these things. So I like this, you know, the imaginative conservative conservative, which is a great uh, online website. They've got uh, very sympathetic people that run that. And so if you're interested in reading articles that don't just deal with the South. And this piece actually came from their website. If they don't just deal with the South and you want to look at some other things, you know, American uh, ideas, American politics, imaginative conservative is a good place to go and read um, so this is a great—I mean, look, anytime we can promote Lee, anytime we can say that Lee is a great American and we should admire Robert E. Lee, and these are good things about Lee, we're going to do that. Uh, Robert E. Lee should be universally admired. It doesn't matter who you're talking about. I mean, he, he was uh, is as, as important, or at least in terms of stature, as George Washington. They were cut from the same cloth. So if we're going to tear down Lee, then we should tear down George Washington. Without without any question. And of course, some people openly admit that. That's the next goal. But uh, Lee was a, a great American. And I call him an American hero in my uh, politically incorrect guide to the Founding Fathers. So um, it's well worth our time to read more about Robert E. Lee. Now let's talk about that Devaney piece. And the last piece, which is Democracy versus Aristocracy in 1830 in Virginia. Now, a lot of people don't know about this Virginia Constitutional Convention of 1830. Uh, It was, in many ways, one of the most important political events in the history of the United States. The list of people that attended that convention as delegates would make uh, most people uh, just stand back in awe of who was there. So let's just run down some of those individuals we had James Madison, we had John Marshall, we had James Monroe, John Randolph of Roanoke, um, William Branch Giles, uh, John Tyler. Uh, let's see, who are some of the others? I'm trying to think off the top of my head. Um, uh, uh, Philip Pendleton Barber was there. Um, uh, 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 uh I can't think of, uh, uh, Abel Upshur was there. Um, so you had some of the most important senator, uh, important statesmen, I should say, uh, in the history of that particular state, but also in the history of the United States. Uh, and so many of these people that were at this convention had roles in the general government and the state government, but this was a, a cast of characters that you just, I mean, there, there's nothing that matched it. Uh, senators from the state, representatives from the state, people that serve, who were presidents of the United States, people that were, uh, of course, um, future members of Congress or uh, people that um, were important in, in federal politics. I mean, this really was one of the most important collections of statesmen that we've ever had in the United States. I mean, I think in some ways it even surpassed the Philadelphia Convention. But one of the major issues was, of course, Suffrage—who was going to be able to vote? And you had this is often cast as these uh, diehard old money pro-slavery individuals from the Tidewater region against the backwoods Democrats of the of the West. Uh, but really, the questions that were being raised are the most one of the most important ones: Is, is democracy even a good system at all? Uh, is democracy anything that we should champion or at least celebrate or for, for its sake alone? And uh, Charles uh, Sidner, in his book, American Revolutionaries in the Making, brought up the fact that Virginia, anti-democratic Virginia, had more liberty than more democratic South Carolina. And that's because when you put democracy in action, what happens is the more people vote, the more problems you create. Because the guy, let's say, you know, has a small homestead. He doesn't like what his neighbor's doing, so he agitates for something. And that agitation will then produce legislation. And perhaps this agitation is something that's going to lessen civil liberties. The more people involved in the process, the fewer civil liberties you're going to have. This has been documented. So uh, the, the question is, now you can say, well, but what about monarchy? You don't have civil liberties in monarchy, and you got all these tyrants and t- totalitarian governments. Uh Oftentimes, these things were championed as democratic. I mean, Hitler didn't come to power by fiat. He came to power through a vote. Uh, The Weimar Republic was very democratic. So, it's it's interesting that this particular convention, uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson Randolph was... uh, uh, one of the delegates. And you had all kinds of issues here. Um, you know, slavery was one of them. It was on the table as well. But um, it's um, just an interesting group of people. And I think that uh, we we often don't uh, look at this particular event enough. I mean, October 29 to January 1830, um, just to, and I, I just pulled up something here, but um uh, it included three presidents seven. US senators 15. US representatives and four governors. you also had uh, the sitting Chief Justice and John Marshall you had other like Philip Pendleton Barber who became a justice on the on the federal bench so just a number of really important individuals plus you know, Secretary of State, uh, Secretary of the Navy I mean just important people at this particular um, at this particular event so but this question of democracy, Is is not one that we are comfortable addressing, but um, as has been addressed recently, you know, the the left now has made democracy this this word democracy part of their of their uh, religious canon, so to speak. I mean, this is it's it's about democracy, not democracy for democracy's sake. Is democracy always in the best interest of good government? This is a very important question to ask, and this question was asked at this particular convention as well. So I love this piece, but I I say that it bookends with Devaney's piece. His piece is entitled, The Limits of a Politics of Tolerance. It gets into this idea of, well, I mean, what does federalism really do? Um, And is democracy always in the best interest of the union? He begins his piece by saying, Secession, nullification, and interposition, like the poor, we shall always have with us. These are as American, indeed more American, than apple pie and baseball. Our new federal union outlined in the Constitution, written at the Philadelphia Convention, and ratified by the independent states and their separate conventions, was barely out of the gate before the first constitutional crisis hit in 1794. And he has a laundry list of things that these states and the people of these states debated. And so he brings up some things, you know, modern secessionist movements. All these things are important. Um, He says at the end of this particular piece, in a more tottering age, a South Carolina lawmaker speaking to a friend from Pennsylvania summed up the new constituted order framed at Philadelphia and ratified by the states. You took us with our African slaves, we took you with your Quakers. This frank acknowledgement of prejudice and willingness to tolerate the other is no longer present in our politics. The Anti-Federalists at the Massachusetts Ratification Convention put forward as one of their chief arguments against ratification the observation that the interests of the different states are too dissimilar to allow for a perpetual union. The Southern Anti-Federalists agrees with their assessment, but in a union we are. The question going forward into time is not if the Union should be preserved, but can we bring about its end in a peaceful, fair, and orderly fashion? To not do so courts disaster. The deep state is already at war with itself, and it does not take a great deal of insight, no matter one's political inclinations, to see the drift towards civil war in the United States. The question is how may the old principle of '98 keep us from tumbling into the abyss? So, when he brings up something like medical marijuana, you know, Southerners don't blink an eye when other states want to not do this. I mean, okay, yeah, you do what you want in your states, but then why is it the North always has to impose its will on the South? Uh, we mentioned this with the uh, CalExit movement. There's nothing. I mean, Southerners aren't blinking an eye at CalExit. Okay, yeah, California, you want to leave? Leave. We'll help you uh, get out the door, right? Because Southerners are committed to that particular principle. Not just for themselves, but for anyone else too. Now we know that and there was always questions about this in the antebellum period when the North wanted to secede, Southerners didn't always support it. But on the other hand, when Thomas Jefferson said, "Look, we can just we can let them err in their own way." Um, so I think that... What we have in America today, some of these issues that were alive in 1829, that were alive in uh, 1832, that were alive in 1794, that were alive in 1787, these issues are still around. There's a reason why a man, a conservative like Robert E. Lee, would side with Virginia because of people in place, even though he was against secession, even though he was against nullification a conservative like Lee, whose father was Washington's right-hand man, could side with secession because it was deeper than just the issue of slavery. Lee was never a de jure slave owner, and yet he could support Southern secession because it was based on the principles of 76. There's a reason why Alden can write a book on the first South and point out the differences between North and South in the colonial period that had nothing to do with slavery because we know they were all there. And there's a reason why someone like Walt Garlington can publish or write an article entitled The GMO Threat and think about these things because what we have now is the centralization not only of political power, but also economic power, agricultural power. It's bigger and bigger. And what is the expense? What At the expense of what? What does it harm? What does it hurt? And, of course, the answer is the individual, the states themselves, the people of the states, small communities. These are the things that we talk about constantly at the Institute. The agrarian tradition is about regionalism. And certainly you can say, well, men like Taylor of Carolina and others were interested in scientific agriculture. There's no doubt about it, and trying to figure out better ways to produce crops. And so we could have that debate. But at its heart, of course, is the question of power. And who has it? And when I suggest that uh, the war, or other things, I mean, when you say, well, this, the, the war was always about power. This union was always about power. Who was going to have it? Who was going to control the levers of power? And the North was more, uh, I think, honestly, power hungry than the South. The South certainly wanted it. I mean, there was always disputes about it, But the South was always interested in preservation. The North, I guess you could say, was interested in preservation as well. But the South actually had stronger overtures toward the North. I mean, look, John C. Calhoun advocating for a tariff following the War of 1812 because essentially he felt bad that the war hurt the North. The North never made such concessions to the South. Never. But the South did, in the spirit of union, make those concessions to the North. And so, as Devaney says, these ideas of decentralization are as American as apple pie and baseball, even more American? Well, certainly. He also says, you know, a, a, a union built on rebellion, essentially, which is what it was, is always going to have this as a potential... And so we just need to accept that. America is that. Of course, he wrote a wonderful piece a couple of weeks ago on American conservatism and pointed to John Randolph of Roanoke as the, as the singular character that we should look at for that. And Randolph was in that 1829-1830 convention that was critical of democracy. It wasn't just aristocracy, it was um, democracy for democracy's sake. When should, Can we not say that democracy can be bad at times? I think that's a, that's a real question to ask. These are all things that are just questions. I mean, you might say, well, no, democracy is always good. Well, okay, but let's have a conversation about it and not be afraid to bring up these questions. So I think the pieces for this week all work together very well in this challenge to central authority, in this challenge to the narrative that the South uh, was somehow... Uh, The alien section. Really, as I've said many times on this podcast, the South is and was America. That there is a Southern environmentalism. There's a Southern way of looking at government. There's a Southern way of looking at society. And that way, that Jeffersonian way, in some of those areas, dominated America for much of its history. And it's only been recently that that changed. So I hope you enjoyed the pieces this week and this podcast. Until next time, good day.